CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Glad to have all of you back with us for another edition of Political Rewind today. I'm Bill Nygut. Um As we get started, and before I introduce our guests, um, it's been quite a while since I've talked to you about the platforms on which you can listen to this show. And it strikes me this is as good a time as any to do it very quickly. Um, obviously, our show now airs live at 9 o'clock in the morning. It then repeats an encore uh, uh, episode of the show at two in the afternoon for those of you who can't be with us at nine. But you can also subscribe to our podcast, obviously. And um, f- a shout out to our Facebook Live followers, because although uh, we no longer have a picture up because we don't have TV cameras as we continue to do the show from remote locations, uh, you're still listening on Facebook Live, still uh, posting comments, which I read with great interest on most days, so you can go to the GPB news page and listen to us there if you'd like to and become part of that conversation. Um, I am kind of grateful we're not doing uh, pictures anymore because it's allowed me to grow a pandemic grizzly Adams beard. Uh, my beard, uh, my somebody in my family said I'm beginning to look like David Letterman after he left television. It's kind of fun, but in any case, uh, those are all the ways and more that you can uh, participate in Political Rewind, and I continue to read your emails uh, at bnigat at gpb.org. All right, um, it's been a couple weeks since we've spent a show talking about the pandemic, its impact on Georgia, and um, over the last week, as the numbers here have continued to spike, it seemed that this was an awfully good time for us to return to that subject. Where are we headed? What's the state doing to slow things down? And so we've invited two experts uh, to talk with us about that today. Uh, Dr. Harry Hyman is a medical doctor who is an associate professor in the School of Public Health at Georgia State University. Uh, Harry's been on the show a number of times, and we're really glad to have you back, Harry. Welcome. Thank you, Bill. We're also joined today by your colleague, uh, Rod, Dr. Rodney Lynn, a PhD who is the interim dean at the School of Public Health at Georgia State University. The two of you uh, Rodney uh, published a, a, a terrific essay about health disparities, which I know is an, an area of interest for both of you. And as we get going in the show, Rodney, I'm, I'm going to be very interested in talking to you about this ongoing problem of the disproportionate impact of the virus on minority communities and the underlying problems that have led to that. So, Rodney, thank you, too, for being here today. Thanks for having me, Bill. Let, let me start. Let's start with a national overview and then bring it in to Georgia. Um, here's the first couple of graphs from the New York Times story this morning on the virus. As President Trump continues to press for a broader reopening, the United States set another record for new coronavirus cases on Wednesday. More than 59,400 infections announced. It was the fifth national record in nine days. The previous record, 56,567, was reported on Friday. The country reached a total of 3 million cases on Tuesday as the virus continued its resurgence in the South and West. At least five states, Missouri, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, and West Virginia, 
set single-day records for new infections. Uh, One more part of this story. As of Tuesday, the country's daily numbers of new cases had increased by 72% over the past two weeks. And by Wednesday, 24 states had reported more cases over the past week than in any other seven-day stretch of the pandemic. That's nationally. Georgia, and then we'll uh, uh, get into our conversation. As of yesterday, in fact, on yesterday, Georgia had the second highest number of positive cases reported, 3,420 new cases. That's the second highest since the start of the pandemic. There were 23 deaths, 274 hospitalizations, and of importance, and I'm sure that our our panel is going to want to talk about this, the positive infection rate is now approaching 15%, 14.8%. Tom Faust points out that Phoebe Putney Hospital down in Albany, which had been the center of the pandemic in this state for so long and then had done a pretty good job of getting rid of it down there, is starting to see cases again. They've started hospitalizing people once more, and uh, so we're going to have to watch them closely. All right, so let's one more thing, and then we'll bring in the panel. Uh, The lieutenant governor was on CNN this morning, Jeff Duncan, and he was asked about the numbers in Georgia as they spike. So let's play what he said and then got response from our panel. Well, we're certainly paying very close attention to the infection rate. Uh, we, we obviously across the country are seeing an increase in infections. I think other numbers that we're continuing to pay close attention to are hospitalizations and deaths. And fortunately for now, the data doesn't point to the exact correlation that we saw early on. Uh, when you talk to our hospitals around the state, obviously a huge concern of ours is to make sure that there's available resources at those hospitals. We continue to hear good words from our hospital systems that there are additional resources out there. You know, one of the things I think we need to continue to talk about is there's improved therapies that are continuing to arrive. That uh, yesterday in a conversation with some folks in the healthcare system talked about the average stay on the front end of this virus was 14 days yeah. uh, in hospitalization, and now it's down to five to seven days. All right, so let's unpack all of that. Let's start, Harry, when you hear the lieutenant governor talking about, yes, we've got a spike in cases, but fortunately hospitalizations are, and deaths are down. We've got resources in the hospitals. What? How do you respond to what he's saying? Um, I want to scream and shout, Bill. I want to scream and shout because there's a consistent effort by the lieutenant governor, the governor, and others to um, frame a narrative uh, that really is uh, not aligned at all with what the data is telling us. Um, you know, for him to tell us that, well, we're not really seeing the hospitalization and our hospital systems are doing fine, is just counter to the, rea- the reality on the ground. You know, it was uh, about six weeks ago that the governor in a news conference celebrated that we had finally brought our hospitalization rate under 1,000. Uh, we now have over 2,200 hospitalized patients across the state. Uh, if you look at the GEMA data put out yesterday, um, more than 80% of our critical care beds across the state are full. And if you look across the regions, and, and those are there's about 14 state regions made up of, on average, about 15 counties, um, we have six regions with less than 16 available critical care beds and four with less than 10 available critical care beds. We're, we, we are racing towards a crisis um, and trying to create this narrative that, you know, we can reopen our state in the way we have without 
um, real-life consequences. And when I talk about real-life consequences, I'm talking about life-and-death consequences. is just incredibly um, disconnected from the facts and the data and, and irresponsible leadership and irresponsible messaging. So, Rodney, I, I have heard other public health officials, experts, uh, say that it's looking at the data that about daily infections uh, that are reported in can be a little bit misleading, um, that we need to look at seven-day averages, which are up in Georgia. But, but another thing that I've heard several of them tell us on this show is that the number they're really concerned about is the number of deaths, as well as uh, hospitalizations. So if it's true right now that deaths are down substantially, um, isn't that a positive sign? Well, certainly we want deaths to be um, down. I mean, everyone agrees uh, on that point. Um, But I think some of what Harry is getting at is uh, in the early days of this pandemic, one of the big concerns was uh, the the potential to overwhelm the, the healthcare system and what happens if the healthcare system and critical care beds are filled and needed. Uh, and so, uh, you know, Harry just said that we're racing toward a crisis. Uh, and I would agree with that. Uh, if we're not, if we're allowing uh, infections to continue to rise at the rate that they're rising, then we are racing towards a, a really serious crisis that's not gonna just affect people that are, you know, have a, a COVID infection, but people that have other uh, health care needs uh, that, that are of an emergency nature that can't get the care uh, that they need. I think certainly if we look across the country, we're seeing uh, states uh, everywhere. I mean, uh, many, many states that are having record uh, levels, as, as you've pointed out. And we're also seeing from an international uh, perspective you know, a country like Sweden uh, that that didn't take the precautions that it needed around social protections, uh, that that this ultimately costs lives, and and they had hoped that it would you know save their economy, and they're suffering there as well. So I think in many ways there's a false choice between locking down and 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 saving lives. Um, you know, lock down and save lives, or open up and save the economy. And the reality is that. Um, we, we've got to uh, impose social protections that are, are, are going to uh, serve us in both areas. Just Harry? one more quick, quick comment on that, if I can. Um, you know, th- there are two narratives out there that are candidly untrue. The, the one narrative has been that our cases are going up because we're doing more testing. And while it's absolutely true that increased testing will increase the number of cases, not to the anywhere near to the extent that we're seeing now, and not with a doubling of the positivity rate, which you referred to earlier, Bill. Um, So what we're seeing now is a dramatic increase in community spread of this virus uh, across our state. Um, The other other narrative that is is candidly not true is, well, it's not as bad as we think, because first it was because we're not seeing hospitalizations, but of course now we are. Uh, and, And then the other thing is, as reflected in the lieutenant governor's comment was, well, we're not seeing the death rates. Well, yeah, thank goodness we're not, but we all understand that death is a lagging indicator in that first you see the case numbers go up, then you see the hospitalization numbers go up, then you see the critical care beds fill, and then the death rate goes up. So if if the the, the, the lieutenant governor um, 
really believes uh, in what he's saying, um, I, I encourage him to revisit the data about two weeks from now. Um, because if you look at um, the, the 10 states across the country with the highest surge in cases, um, they now, three to four weeks out from that surge, are having an increase in their death rates. Um, and, and that's why All it's right, critically well, here- important that we do something now to, 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 to bend this curve. All right. So, Rodney, let me ask you the most basic question I have uh, on my agenda for today. What the heck is happening in Georgia? We, we plateaued for a period of maybe five weeks. I, I don't have the dates in front of me, but from sometime cl- close to the beginning of April all the way to the beginning of June, we were still seeing cases, but there was a plateau. We were not spiking. And suddenly, uh, in the last three weeks, basically, the numbers are shooting up again. What happened? Yeah, you know, I think messaging uh, matters. Uh, and uh, certainly we had taken more precautions as a state uh, in, the, in, the, in the earlier part of the, the pandemic. And uh, there had been a significant uh, re- restriction and p- people were staying at home. Uh, the messages were about uh, staying at home, taking precautions. Uh, and as those stay-at-home orders have uh, expired, uh, as, uh, you know, there's been uh, many messages that suggest uh, confidence in where we are or where we, we, we were coming out of that, uh, I think we've seen a lot of the, the population uh, re-engage in behaviors uh, that they were engaged in, you know, pr- prior to this pandemic and uh, a belief that this was behind us. And so uh, as we think about what's needed going forward, uh, certainly, you know, the, the, the social protections that I, I mentioned earlier, uh, mask, um, you know, the wearing of mask and the requiring of mask is a basic and fundamental uh, strategy that for which there is considerable evidence and, and, and data that it works. And so uh, in addition to physical distancing, uh, that, that's something that we, we've got to do. Uh, certainly, we're isolating people that are um, you know, uh, symptomatic. Uh, we need to strengthen the system uh, of contact tracing that allows us to identify uh, those individuals and their contacts. Uh, but, uh, you know, there, there's more that we can do than we are doing. Harry, um, I want to go back uh, to this question. Uh, Rodney just talked about, uh, the, again, the, the precautions like masking. Um, we know that we now have a situation where we should reestablish the fact that when Governor Kemp uh, was authorized to issue a an emergency a series of emergency orders uh, uh, dealing with the pandemic, among those orders was was one which said that no municipality, no city, uh, no local jurisdiction could, in fact, impose any kinds of restrictions separate from what or in ex- exceeding what the state did. Uh, the governor has never uh, required, said that masks must be worn by citizens, by people who are in this state. Uh, he's encouraged them to, but he's resisted mandating it. Now, though, we have the biggest jurisdiction, the city of Atlanta. The mayor has said masks are now mandatory. East Point has mandated it. Savannah has mandated uh, masks in other jurisdictions as well. So all that said, let's play one more soundbite from Jeff Duncan, the lieutenant governor on CNN this morning when he was asked about masks, and I'll get you both to respond to it. 
Well, the position that the governor takes, and I fully support this, is that we are encouraging every single person in our state, all 11 million Georgians, in every community to wear a mask when at all possible. Uh, certainly, I've seen great, great results to that. The room I'm sitting in here today, everybody's wearing a mask. Uh, I was at the grocery store yesterday. I didn't see a single person without a mask. I think this whole notion of trying to mandate uh, somewhat becomes a distraction, and it's hard to enforce. I think we need to, as leaders, continue to encourage everybody in every community to take this very seriously with social distancing, with wearing masks, with being clean and, and uh, having the highest levels of hygiene. Harry, masks still seem to be a symbol of your partisan political position. Um, so if I may, let me, let me go back a minute to the, the previous question that Rodney answered, because I, I agree completely sure. with, with Rodney that um, clear uh, messaging about uh, responsible and, and appropriate behavior in terms of wearing a mask and, and, and social distancing, et cetera, uh, is, is important. Um, but what's even more important than that is putting the policies in place to ensure that that behavior happens um, across most of the population. And, and I think when you ask the question, why are we in the situation, situation that we're in, the answer is because we've had an utter failure of our political and public health leadership in the state to put the policies and practices in place that were needed to protect the public. Um, I think there's no question that we reopened too quickly, uh, even in a press, press conference going back to uh, May, um, the commissioner herself said, yeah, we, uh, we, we didn't really meet any of the uh, White House dating criteria, uh, but there are things other than data that we're following. And then in spite of the numbers moving the wrong direction, the governor continued to reopen the state. Um, so we, we did too much too quickly. Uh, and while I think it's critically important to message like the lieutenant governor and the, and the governor over his holiday uh, tour did about the importance of wearing masks, um, we in public health know that policy is a critical tool um, to both create social norms and change behaviors. Um, you know, you don't see us coaxing people to wear a seatbelt in their car. Um, you have you have requirements and, and you have fines if they're not wearing wear, wearing a seatbelt. Um, it's not by accident that the Georgia legislature passed legislation to make it illegal in our state to text while driving. It's not that people didn't know that that was an, uh, an unsafe behavior. Everybody knew that. But until there was there, there was some kind of legal um, enforcement um, behavior didn't change. So will making a mandate that people wear masks ensure that everyone will wear a mask all the time in public places? Absolutely not. But do we know based on the history of, of mandates um, whether that will have a large impact on the percentage of people wearing masks? Absolutely yes. Uh, and that's a critical policy tool that needs to happen not only at the state level, but at the, um, at the national level. Um, I'm excited that we've seen local leadership um, step forward. I especially credit the Savannah mayor for being the first one to, to take that risk, uh, placing the, the health of his community um, over the political risk of going against the, uh, the, the, the governor and appreciate that uh, Mayor Bottoms has done the same. Um, and I appreciate that USG, uh, the University System of Georgia, has finally come around to recognize the importance of of mandatory masks in public places, but but we need more of that, and we need a statewide mandate. Yeah, I I, I would wholeheartedly agree with uh, Harry's assessment there. I think that um, 
you know, all our public officials need to uh, really take uh, the, the evidence into in consideration. And the examples that Harry gave, I think, are uh, many of the same examples I would, would give as well. Uh, many of the, the laws that we have and the requirements we have for the public are about protecting uh, others. It's, it's, you know, some of it's about protecting the individual uh, engaged in a behavior, but so often it's about protecting other people in the community. And, and this is an example uh, where we need laws, requirements, mandates uh, that, that, you know, instruct people to uh, engage in a behavior that uh, is going to protect others. Uh, and so uh, that's what we need to see. And, and I, too, uh, applaud the um, public officials that are, are, are taking those matters into their own hands and using all the authorities that they have to ensure that, uh, you know, the public is protected. So we are going to have to get to a break in a minute, but but I'd really like to ask one last question before we do, um, and it's very practical. Uh, Rodney, I'm more than happy to have you start with this. I have said on, on the show on any number of occasions that I continue, and, and so do my wife and our grown, our adult daughter who's come home to weather this from Brooklyn with us, um, we continue to shelter in place for the most part. We're not going out shopping for groceries. Um, we're not running to the drugstore. Um, my daughter's even figured out how to get somebody to deliver Dairy Queen ice cream to our house. So, um, but so here's my question, Rodney. What, how safe should I feel if I do wear a mask, if I do practice social distancing, if I do stay six feet away from people in the supermarket, um, how safe should I feel going out into the world at this point, or am I correct to continue sheltering in place, especially as the virus is surging here? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, you know, at my home, we're doing much of the same as what you're doing at your home. I mean, we order groceries ahead. We, we go pick them up and, and have them put in the back of the, the car. Um, and so we're doing all we can to continue to uh, practice the same things we were practicing two months ago. Um, I think the reality, and, and I, I talked about this false choice earlier, um, the, the truth is that we can't, um, I don't think it's in the interest of the, of the, the state or, or the nation to stay locked down indefinitely. Um, and so I don't think that we could uh, continue to do that. But there's so much we can do uh, to mimic the protective benefits of lockdowns. And um, one of our other faculty members here in the School of uh, Public Health, Gerardo Chow, wrote, uh, co-authored a piece in the Harvard Business Review that was really uh, talking about this concept of how do we mimic the protective benefits of lockdowns without their destructive downsides. And I think that's what we, we ought to be moving towards. And so we had this period where, you know, we had these lockdowns and, and in some ways flattened uh, the, the curve uh, and if we had come out of that with the kinds of social protections that mimic the lockdown, masks, things that we're, we've just been talking about, um, you know, isolating those that are, are sick, ensuring physical distancing in workplaces, public areas, restaurants and retail stores, um, we'd be in a much better place right now. But the reality is those things haven't happened. So really to your question about how safe are we, I think there are different risk profiles, uh, and, and each individual has to take their risk profile into consideration. 
Uh, and, you know, for certain groups of people, they need to take additional precautions. Um, and then we all have a different risk tolerance. But I think if we are imposing uh, on at scale the types of social protections that we just talked about, uh, I think we can move society towards, um, uh, I don't want to say normal operations, but functioning uh, so that the economy can get going, people can work, kids can go to school, uh, and, and we can get closer to, to, to uh, something that is uh, workable and balances all, all, all interests. Yeah, I, you know, um, I, I, I agree with everything that you're saying, Rodney. I, you know, my, my, my concern, again, is about the policy and public health infrastructure needed to create the conditions for us to, to open the economy safely uh, and allow people to resume some of those some of those activities. And I worry, you know, you, you talk, Bill, about what you're comfortable doing. Um, you know, we're all we're all talking from the comfort and protection of either our, our home or our um, isolated, no one else is in the building office. Um, you know, if you think about those communities being disproportionately impacted uh, by this pandemic, um, they're having to choose between um, their lives and their livelihood, um, right? They're having to choose between um, either going to work um, at their job where they don't have a choice of either coming into work or, or losing the job uh, and continuing to, to make money to pay uh, rent and provide food and take care of their families um, or protect their health and maybe the health of more vulnerable people at home by not going to work, but then, but then um, putting themselves at a significant social and economic risk. Um, and, it's, and it's estimated to be about 40 million people um, nationally um, that, 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 are in that, that are in that position, and, and those people are disproportionately black and brown uh, and low income. Um, that's what, that's what um, gives me heartburn and keeps me up at night. Well, and, and th- you have set us up for the conversation I want to have when we come back from our break, because it points to the essay that the two of you co-authored on this very subject of health outcome disparities. And so we will do that when we return. In the meantime, you're listening to Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. We're back on uh, Political Rewind and glad to welcome uh, Dr. Rodney Lynn, who is the interim dean in the School of Public Health at Georgia State University, and his colleague, uh, Dr. Harry Hyman, uh, associate professor in the School of Public Health. Um, I said before the break that the two of you have co-authored a really uh, important essay about uh, what this virus has exposed, which is the terrible disparities in how health, in, in, in the many aspects of, of the minority community, how the minority communities of this country and this state make their way through life, and, and how white uh, communities uh, uh, deal with life every day. 
And um, we've talked about that with some regularity on the show, but your essay puts it in a context that I think we really need to talk about. And if you don't mind, I'd like to read you both one paragraph of it and then have you have the broader discussion. You say the same historical and contemporary policies and practices that lead to racial residential segregation, barriers to education, housing, and economic opportunities also lead to increased health risks and worse health opportunities and outcomes. It is not by chance or due to lack of personal responsibility that there is a 13-year life expectancy difference between Buckhead and Bankhead in Atlanta and similar disparities between urban and rural areas in our state. Long before Doherty County was devastated by COVID-19, it ranked 152 out of 159 Georgia counties in health outcomes. Um, So it's a much bigger problem than just the fact that minorities, people of color, are are ending up with COVID-19 at much higher rates than uh, the rest of us. Uh, It's a much more systemic uh, issue. That said, Rodney, uh, the virus has, in a very dramatic way, disproportionately affected people of color. Yes? Yes. Um, and, um, you know, we should all be uh, not only alarmed, we should be responding uh, to what's happening in, a, in, in, you know, significant way. And um, I think what we point out in the, in, in the piece uh, is that there's much more that can be done and should be done uh, to uh, support uh, and respond to the needs uh, of, of minority uh, communities uh, across the state. Um, I think one of the, the, the main thrusts that uh, we put forward in the, in the piece is really that what we're seeing is not simply a function of, oh, you know, African-Americans uh, you know, have higher rates of uh, diabetes or other chronic diseases, and that's why they're getting ill. I mean, there's some truth to that. But, you know, the underlying question is, why? Uh, Why do the disparities exist that you've talked about in life expectancy that uh, for almost any health outcome uh, that you can name, uh, there's a significant disparity. And and we we point specifically to uh, structural racism and uh, you know, problems in our systems that that produce these inequities. Uh, and disadvantage uh, and discriminate uh, against uh, African-American, Latino, and other communities of color. And so, you know, these are the things that we're bringing to the attention of the, of the public and our public officials and, and really demanding that, uh, you know, this be attended to in a way that's meaningful uh, and that uh, produces uh, uh, equity and outcomes. Gary, uh, CDC data shows that, let me just say this and I'll give it to you, CDC data show that blacks and Latinos are three times more likely to become infected with COVID-19 and twice as likely to die. I just throw that in to make the point even more dramatically. And, 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 and I see that, you know, that's uh, CDC conclusions based on national data and, and we're seeing the same trends in, in Georgia uh, and, and candidly, um, the, the, the response that I've seen today is a lot of hand wringing, uh, and and you know, boy, boy, boy is that is, isn't that terrible? But 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 no meaningful action to respond to the data. And I think the the critical point that Rodney made was that a it's critically important to have data to understand what the disproportionate impact 
of COVID-19 as well as other health conditions is on different communities. But what's more important is to use that data to inform the policies, uh, practices, uh, and approaches that are needed to target those communities being disproportionately affected, um, both to ensure that we um, provide protection and reduce their risk uh, and ensure uh, you know, uh, access to treatment and, and supports. Um, it's also not by accident that the same communities being disproportionately impacted by COVID and other health conditions are also those same community, communities that are being disproportionately impacted by the social and economic um, impacts of COVID. And as our, as our essay suggests, the foundation for that is structural and systemic racism. It's, it's, it's a structure and system that um, makes um, poor blacks in this country um, in, in urban settings 10 to, 30 per, per 10 to 30 times more likely to live in communities with concentrated poverty. So the, the level of poor uh, is the same, but the, but the um, neighborhood characteristics are different based on our long history um, of, of racial residential segregation, going back to racial zoning and redlining and a whole host of policies, many of which persist today uh, that um, disadvantage um, the black community uh, and other communities. And it's also um, not by accident that low-income workers uh, in essential jobs uh, and in service industries um, are being disproportionately impacted um, because they're the ones that aren't sitting behind a computer um, working like the three of us are, uh, but are having to show up for work um, as we've reopened the economy, um, whether appropriate protections are in place or not. Um, and that's a problem that needs to be um, addressed not only by the public broadly, but especially by policymakers. Uh, and I'm speaking particularly about our political leaders uh, and, and our public, le uh, public health leaders at both uh, the state and local levels. Yeah, I would add that uh, we've also responded differently. I mean, thinking about this issue of systemic racism uh, more broadly, we've also responded differently uh, to different uh, problems uh, or similar problems differently. I mean, a couple of examples. Uh, you know, certainly in the criminal justice system and what we see around policing, uh, there's uh, tremendous disparities, both in terms of arrest, violence, uh, deaths, uh, and, and sentencing. Uh, and, you know, you, you could also look at the op opioid epidemic, uh, another health crisis. Um, this is being treated and framed very differently. I mean, there are resources and support. Uh, whereas in decades past, uh, when we had a crack cocaine uh, epidemic, uh, that was treated very differently and, and people, people, it was criminalized. Uh, and so, you know, whether it's that or how we talk about deaths of despair now, um, there have been, you know, uh, challenges and, and despair in the African-American and minority communities uh, for uh, uh, long periods of time that have not been treated empathetically uh, with empathy and, and, and really uh, in the manner that it, it, it should have been responded to. So, you know, across so many uh, sectors and, and, and areas, there's so much that we can and should be and must do differently uh, to address these uh, inequities. 
Um, so one of the things that I, I saw in your uh, op-ed piece that uh, struck me as an example of what you're talking about is, um, Harry, you, you point to the fact that there are now any number of drive-through testing sites across the state of Georgia, but there are very few walk-up sites. And, and, of course, the point you make here is that it is uh, possible that there are areas of the state where minority uh, uh, residents are, are perhaps in a situation where they don't have cars to get to these testing sites. So they're not able to deal, Harry, with the, the basic, uh, uh, you know, uh, going through the hoops to get to the test. Yes. Yeah. I mean, part of the part, part, part of the question that Rodney and I work to address is, if the goal of collecting data, uh, and and just as an aside, um, we're actually doing a worse job in Georgia of collecting race and ethnicity data uh, over the past two months than the prior period. It's missing on about uh, 30% of cases. Um, and there's a long list of reasons slash excuses uh, for why that problem exists now and why it's historically um, occurred. But um, I think uh, th- there are um, ways to address that. I think the question that we're really working to, to answer is, once you know there's a disproportionate impact on communities of color, and in Georgia specifically, uh, black communities and Latinx communities are being disproportionately impacted, what then is your responsibility uh, to do next? Uh, in the case of COVID-19, um, access to uh, timely testing and treatment is critically important. From a testing perspective, you know, the state stood up um, well over 100 drive-in sites, um, which, is, which is great, but it means that the, the, the ticket for entry to testing is having access to a private car. Um, if you think about um, those urban and rural communities where car ownership is low, uh, they're disproportionately low income, and they're disproportionately black and brown, those same communities that are being disproportionately uh, impacted. So there's a tremendous gap between resources and need just in access to testing alone. And then when you look at treatment, um, look at those communities that are disproportionately having problems with access to healthcare, um, uh, which communities are disproportionately rep- represented among those who are uninsured. Um, if, if there was an, ever a time where it was appropriate for our state to rethink the, the, the decision not to expand Medicaid, um, now, now is that time. I mean, you know, um, already, um, 250,000 Georgians were falling into the coverage gap. Uh, that, that, that number will more than triple, um, you know, over the next six to 12 months as a result of the, of the significant um, economic impact um, of this uh, pandemic. And that's just uh, kind of the health and healthcare side of it. The other thing that, that we addressed, which is also critically important, is putting in appropriate um, systems and support to mitigate the social and economic impacts. And I'm talking about things like um, a moratorium on eviction um, and foreclosure with appropriate protections for, for, for landowners and, 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 and for, and for um, lending, lending organizations. But again, you, you can't protect yourself or your family if you don't have a home to do that. Uh, it means making sure that there's uh, income support for those unable to work. Um, either because of their own risk or the risk of family members. It means making sure there are systems to support um, uh, access to food. Um, so lots of things our state should be doing, um, but uh, needless to say, we're not doing near enough. 
it, it's hard to add to that exhaustive list of, of issues that, that Harry just uh, articulated. Uh, I think all of those are critically important. Um, you know, in the early days of uh, this pandemic, uh, there was um, you know, public support for things like sick leave. Uh, and if you aren't able to provide for your family uh, because you don't have uh, sick leaves, if you have to choose between going to work and, and, and making an income uh, or, uh, or, or staying home and not, uh, people are, are, are inclined to go to work uh, sick. And that, that's you know, certainly the way that the virus spreads. So we need to incentivize the behaviors that we want to see, and we need to have the supports in place uh, especially for those that are most vulnerable, uh, and that was the focus of this uh, this opinion editorial. Um, you know, sick leave, income. Uh, Harry talked about access to care. Uh, there are things that we can do. Uh, he mentioned expansion of Medicaid as uh, a high priority, something that we could do to really expand uh, population access and access uh, for those that are, are most vulnerable. So, you know, I would just second all the things that that, that Harry has said here. So let me ask, we've got to get to another break, but Harry, let me ask a different question about this. Um, in many ways, isn't, re, isn't information about geographic location of where the cases are uh, taking place uh, of, of particular importance? Do we, in other words, does this, is it easier for the state to look at the universe of COVID-19 cases and know where they're taking place because they're getting results back from a given geographical area. And by that, I say we knew Doherty County became a hotspot, not because there was any way of tracking the majority African-American community that happens to live in that area, but because we were seeing Phoebe Putney and what was happening cases there. Does that make sense, what I'm asking? Well, I think I think it's critically important for us to, to understand at the local level what's going on, um, both in terms of geographically uh, where the hotspots are and within those geographic areas, which populations are being uh, disproportionately impacted. Um, so, you know, uh, state level numbers um, are kind of a crude indicator of, of what may be going on in, in my community. Um, and, and even county level, uh, which is much, much better, obviously, than, than state level, can be, can be a crude indicator because uh, we know, for example, uh, in Fulton County, um, what's, what's, what's happening to people in the southern part of the county is significantly different than um, what's happening in the, in the northern part of the county. And you could say the same for DeKalb and, and, and others. And, and by the way, um, those differences are not, are not neutral to, to race and ethnicity. If you look at Gwinnett, um, a, a big part of the surge in cases in Gwinnett County has been in the Latinx community. Um, and, and no question that the, the black community is being disproportionately impacted in both Fulton and, and DeKalb. So it's critically important to know where it is in the local area. And then in terms of matching resources to need, whether those are social needs, uh, economic needs, or testing needs, um, being able to do geospatial analysis at the, at the neighborhood and community level is really valuable in terms of, of setting up walk-in testing and those kinds of things. So I've got to get to a break, but I want to make one last point about your essay. Uh, a sentence that jumped out at me in the starkest terms possible, and it doesn't relate specifically to COVID-19, but it certainly does to the underlying problems that you're saying have led to the disproportionate impact of the virus on uh, uh, blacks and other minorities. 
a 13-year difference between the life expectancy of residents of Buckhead and Bankhead. Uh, Harry, that number startles me. Yeah, actually, actually, that estimate's on the low end, Bill. Yeah. Um, th- th- there's probably 20-plus year uh, disparities uh, between neighborhoods, not only in Atlanta, but in every other major metropolitan area in the country, north, south, east, west. Um, and not by accident, but by design, those disparities line up really well if you pull out from the late 1930s. Um, wrap, uh, maps showing redlining, um, those communities uh, which were disproportionately black and had no access to capital uh, for buying homes, improving homes, starting small businesses. Um, if you match those maps up, um, you, you, you see they line up very well. Yeah, I was, I was going to make Rodney, that Rodney, I want to give you one last crack at this. Yeah, yeah I was going to make the Go point ahead. as well. Uh, Harry said, you know, probably closer to 20 years, and that's what we see in many cities across the country uh, in terms of that life expectancy gap. Uh, what I would say is from a life course perspective, you know, that, that really being an approach to understanding the, the mental, physical, and social health of individuals, incorporating sort of lifespan and life stages if we think about maternal you know, mortality and infant mortality in Georgia, we think about you know, outcomes uh, in, in education, early care in K-12, access, quality. If we think about family income in minority communities, college going and completion, um, employment, uh, access to care we've, we've covered, uh, you know, a- across all of those stages, um, we have significant, significant disparities. And until we're, um, you know, bold enough and have the political will to take on all of those areas, we're going to continue to have the inequities and outcomes that we have. And the point we're making is that that's just socially uh, and, and unacceptable. All right. We give you the last word on this segment. We got to go to a break. Oh, wait, one last quick quick comment. When you talk about zip codes in Buckhead and zip codes in the Bankhead area, you're talking about so few miles that separate those two communities, and yet the difference is so stark and overwhelming. All right, let's get to our final break of the show, and we'll be back with just a little more on Political Rewind. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause. And rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Rodney Lynn and Harry Hyman of the Georgia State University School of Public Health. My guest today, my time management on this show has been atrocious. We have about five minutes left in the entire show, but I do want to get to one other quick point. Uh, Rodney, the, uh, okay, so here's the thing. President Trump says all schools have to open in the fall or else I'm going to withhold federal funds. CDC's guidelines, the president says, are much too strict. So the CDC comes back and says, well, we'll revise the guidelines. This morning, Tom Faust just told me, CDC says, nah, not so fast. We're not going to revise them at all. All right, that's political circus. But Rodney, how confident would you be? I don't know if you're a father, so I for, forgive me for uh, asking a question. Do you want children going back to school in the fall at this point? Well, 
I would. I am a father. Uh, I have two kids, uh, and okay. I am hopeful that they uh, can return to school uh, this fall. Um, you know, my son is in daycare. He has returned to school. My daughter, um, you know, uh, is in high school, and I'm hopeful that she will return. So I think that should be our hope. Now, when we, you know, when we look at data here. You know, only 2% or so of infections uh, around COVID-19 are among, you know, uh, children under the age of 17. And there's also limited evidence that they transmit the virus at high rates. Um, and there are also costs of keeping kids out of school, mental health, learning, access to meals, access to a safe environment. And so, you know, I think it's important where safe to send kids back to school um, but it's not solely about what schools decide. Local conditions around virus prevalence is very important, and every district uh, is going to be different. So there's not a one-size-fits-all here, uh, and there's going to be a need for you know, variation uh, in, in the response uh, it, uh, to, to schools. Yeah, I think, I think Rodney makes a number of critical points, and, and, and I think the question we should be asking it's not, you know, should we or shouldn't we reopen schools, but, but how do we do that in a way that is safe and responsible? Um, it's much more difficult to do now than it would be had we managed this uh, pandemic better and had a lower level of cases and community spread. Uh, in fact, based on current CDC guidelines, when there's a high level of, of uh, virus and cases and spread in the community, um, you should think about closing your school for a couple of weeks. Um, so, uh, again, to me, that, that means it's critically important that the commissioner of public health and the governor um, take uh, aggressive action now in not only mandating masks, but stepping back some of the current reopening so we can get things in a better place uh, to make it safer. Um, I think the other critical points that, that, that Rodney makes is that schools aren't just about um, education. They, they provide a, a powerful social and economic need. Uh, for many families. The majority of students K through 12 in our public schools are low income um, and disproportionately black and brown. So again, if we care about those families being disproportionately impacted by this pandemic, then we need to get it right, both in terms of the pandemic and the way we safely reopen schools. Yeah, and, and I would just um, add- We're running out of time. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah I would Go just ahead. add, and it's reinforcing some things that Harry said here, that controlling the epidemic first is the pri is priority one. And once you do that, you can start to explore uh, sending kids back to school, going back to work, but even then social protections have to be in place around masks and distancing and home isolation where appropriate, hygiene and you know, hand washing and so on. So uh, that, that has to be the approach and we've taken some steps back and we need to, to get the, the epidemic under control before we go forward uh, at this point. Dr. Rodney Lynn, you get the last word in today's show. Thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure to have you. As always, uh, Dr. Hyman, you as well. Uh, we're completely out of time, but I thought I really learned a lot in the conversation with the two of you and appreciate your being with me. Um, uh, we, had another sh we had more shootings in the city of Atlanta last night, and a nine-year-old boy was shot in the legs. He's not going to die, thank goodness. But what's happening in Atlanta is a subject we're going to take up tomorrow on the show. Atlanta City Council President Felicia Moore among the panelists who will be with us to talk about the crisis that we're dealing with 
here right now. That's it for us today. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, Until tomorrow, take care and please stay healthy. Bye-bye, everybody.